Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your word, that you'll draw us near to you, enable us to understand these truths, the insights that are here, and especially, Lord, may your Holy Spirit apply them to our life day by day. May we understand the gospel better and help us to have greater confidence in it, greater confidence in your word, and Lord, love you and fear you with our whole life. Lord, that's our prayer, and so guide us into those paths, those straight paths, by your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Our study begins in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse 15. 315. We'll continue to read about John the Baptist and then a transition into Christ, his person, and his identity. So a transition from John the Baptist to Jesus in this passage. He has preached repentance and he still has a lot of people listening to him. We'll read verses 15 to 17, 315. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He himself will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John has attracted a crowd, a huge crowd of people, and many have come to be baptized by him. And the people, seeing the kind of amazing man he is and the way that he fearlessly preaches the truth, the way that he is able to uh, withstand any criticism from the people, the way that he is baptizing and his message, and even baptism and the significance of baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it says in Luke 3, verse 3. This has attracted many people, and as is common to human nature, when somebody attracts a crowd, everybody wants to think of him as an angel or a god or something like that, as some invincible person. And this is what is happening to John. And they are thinking, the people are wondering if he might be the Christ. However, he could not be the Christ. He could not be the Christ on the basis of a few essential facts. For one, he's not born in Bethlehem. Two, he's not from Nazareth. Three, he's not from the line of Judah. And he's not a descendant of David. John the Baptist is actually from the tribe of Levi. So he could not be the Messiah for those basic reasons. There are many other reasons why. But people who are prone to fanaticism, prone to giddiness when they see somebody who's popular, they don't think. They don't use their mind. But they need to use their mind. They need to examine the scriptures. It doesn't matter who is preaching or teaching. They must use the scriptures for discernment to discern good and evil. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 says... And even the Bereans are complimented for this. They are commended in Acts 17, 10, and 11 because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they did that. And they did it to Paul the Apostle. They did it to Paul and Silas. And if they are commended for doing it to Paul and Silas, we would also be commended to do it to anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. Anyone and everyone who teaches the Bible, who says anything about God in the Bible, must be tested by the Bible. Now, notice also John's answer. John's answer is an answer of humility, which should also be in a true Bible teacher. A true Bible teacher will deflect and say, it's a, the gift of God, it's the calling of God, it's for the glory of God. He will have that kind of answer, and he will say, Double-check what I say. Look at it yourself. Read it yourself. Check the scriptural evidence yourself. He will do so. And that's what John is about to do. He says in verse 16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, or in water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He himself will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. John is practicing humility here. He is deflecting the praise and the consideration of himself and onto Christ. 
which, which is the way a true teacher would conduct himself. He says, he's baptizing in water. In water is a better translation than with water. With water gives room for infant baptism, for sprinkling or pouring, infant baptism. But in water is the practice of John, the, was the practice of John the Apostle and is the practice expected of us. In John chapter 3, verse 23, it says that he baptized in uh, uh, Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Much water there. And even a few of the infant baptizers who are commentators acknowledge that John's baptism was an immersionist kind of baptism. And in fact, the Greek word to baptize means to immerse. So this is the preference of what John was doing. He was baptizing by immersion, fully immersing the person under the water. And this is what Philip did to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He went down into the water and he came up out of the water. Another very clear passage that shows that Christian baptism and John's baptism, which are the same thing, John and Jesus' baptism, are both the same kind. They are baptisms of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Acts 2.38, Peter preaches baptism of, of uh, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He preached the same thing. So, here, John and his deflection. He baptizes. He says he's doing it in water. Now, the water baptism is of significance only if the candidate for baptism understands why he's being baptized. Because prior to that baptism, he has believed the gospel. He has understood the gospel. He has a conviction of his sins, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the consequences of his sins, and how, if he believes in Jesus, Jesus is his substitute and his penalty for the forgiveness of his sins, Jesus' death and resurrection. Only then is the baptism helpful if one understands the meaning of the sign or the meaning of the symbol. If he understands its meaning, then it's helpful. If he does not understand it, it's of no value. This also means that infants who have no comprehension cannot be baptized because they don't understand the meaning of it. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, verse 34, it says that the jailer believed with his household. That means his household believed and the jailer believed in the gospel, and that's why they were baptized. Believers are those who are baptized. He does it in water. Now, when he says he's doing it in water and contrasting it to Christ, he's not diminishing it. He's just saying Christ has this supreme authority to bring about the baptism of people in the Holy Spirit and fire, which is not something that John has the, the privilege of initiating and He's not the source and the origin of it. It is Christ himself who is only able to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's contrasting his water to the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit. That's what he's doing here. So, therefore, Christ is superior to John. Another thing he does here, he says he's mightier than I. He's mightier than I. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it calls Christ, the Messiah, mighty God. He is the mighty God because he comes from heaven. John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the kind of humility. He recognizes who Christ is. We know from the narrative of chapters 1 and 2 that John was conceived six months before Christ. So in terms of human age, John was older. And naturally, we think that the oldest in the family, or we think that the forefather, because of his seniority and also because of his godliness and because of his name, he has a greater reputation than his descendant. Normally speaking, that's the way it is. But not in this case. Because Jesus existed before John because Jesus possesses deity, a divine nature, and has always existed in eternity past as spirit, not with the human body, which only took place when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Only then did he take upon human flesh. But before that, 
he possessed deity. And during this, he possessed deity, and he will always possess deity. And John knew this. That's why he says, he is mightier than I. He is coming. And he's not even fit to untie the thong of his sandals. This action was typically conducted by a slave or a servant for his master. This was typically done as a very servile and menial task of a slave or servant for his master. And he's saying here, I know that I am a slave or servant, but I'm not even worthy to do this for this master, the master from heaven. I'm not even worthy to do this. This is the way he looks at himself. He is nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to Christ. So he humbles himself and puts Christ in his proper place, on the throne. Not himself on the throne, but only Christ. Verse 17. And then he speaks of Christ's unique privilege. It says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He uses this figure from daily life, farming life, where wheat has to be separated from the chaff of, of the wheat. And then the chaff of the wheat, when it's separated with the winnowing fork, it blows away in the wind. And what settles, what is heavier, is the wheat, and then the farmer collects the wheat. The chaff blows away, and it's useless. Either it blows away in the wind, or it's collected in one place, and then placed into the fire. And there it goes away. They discard it that way. It either blows away or it's burned up in fire. Well, here he's saying that Christ is ready to do this. He is ready for the day of judgment. He's ready to separate the wheat, that is the believers, from the chaff, the unbelievers. He's ready to separate the elect from the reprobate, the righteous from the wicked. He's ready to do this and throw the wicked into the unquenchable fire. We know that Jesus announced the parable along the same lines in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and then the explanation in the subsequent verses, 36 to 43. Jesus explained this very thing, that on the day of judgment, he will be the one who sends forth his angels throughout the world to separate the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the chaff. And then, when judgment has taken place, Christ himself, as the Son of Man, because God has given him the privilege of executing judgment because he is the Son of Man, as he says in John chapter 5, he will do so. Jesus will be the ultimate judge. And Paul said in Acts 17, 30 and 31, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, by appointing a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Even to Gentiles, they need to hear of the death and resurrection of Christ and that Christ is the one, this Jewish prophet, priest and king, is the one who will be the judge of the whole world. Even Gentiles need to hear that. Jews and Gentiles, because he was God's only begotten son, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, only he is uniquely qualified to be the judge of the whole world. That's what John's preaching here to the Jews and Paul in Acts 17 to the Gentiles. Verse 18, 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations also he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison. He says here in verse 18, So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. There were many other ways in which he exhorted the people. He exhorted them in many ways. We know that exhortation, according to this context, includes preaching Warnings or preaching judgment. It includes that. It's not exclusively that, but it includes that. Another example we might have of this 
is from the book of Hebrews. We all know that the book of Hebrews has warning passages. Everyone knows them, commonly speaking. There are several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Well, in Hebrews 13.22, he says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He calls his letter a word of exhortation. His letter has interspersed encouragement and warning, encouragement and threats, consolation and condemnation. There's consolation for those who rightly respond to the gospel, but there's condemnation for those who reject the gospel. It's both. Exhortation, biblically speaking, includes both. And this is the duty, actually, not only of John the Baptist, but of every faithful teacher of the Bible. For it says in Titus chapter 1 that the elder or pastor ought to be doing the following. It says he ought to, in Titus 1, 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The elder or overseer pastor is supposed to hold fast the faithful word which is in, with, in accordance with the teaching. The faithful word and the teaching, this is the gospel, that he may be able to do two things, exhort and sound doctrine. Exhortation includes consolation and condemnation. It includes upliftment, but also warning. It includes both. That's what exhortation is. But also, false teachers need to be refuted to refute those who contradict. This is what John did, Jesus did, the prophets did, the apostles did, and every faithful pastor is supposed to do the same. And what did he do? He preached the gospel to the people. Notice here, Luke calls John's message, John the Baptist's message, gospel. Jesus preached the gospel, the apostles preached the gospel, and John the Baptist preached the gospel even before Jesus died and rose again on the third day. And even before the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, John preached the gospel. And this is not the only time that Luke says this. He says, for example, um, in Luke chapter 20, in reference to Christ, in Luke chapter 20, he says about Christ, 20 verse 1, And it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Jesus also was preaching the gospel. Now, I've said that the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. The scriptures actually define the gospel to be so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5, we have a succinct definition of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, by which you are saved, in which you stand, and by which you uh, are saved unless you believed in vain. That is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There He explains and defines the Gospel. And what is that? That Christ died, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel that... Paul preached, it's the gospel that John preached, it's the gospel that Jesus preached. This means that there's only one true gospel. Before the death and resurrection of Christ, after the death and resurrection of Christ, and during our age, there's only one gospel. And also, it goes back deep into the Old Testament. It's even in the book of Genesis. I would argue that it's in Genesis chapter 3. It at least begins there, Genesis 3.15, which is known as the first proclamation of the gospel or the proto-euangelion in Genesis 3.15. But Paul clearly uses the word gospel in Galatians 3.6-9 in reference to Abraham saying 
that the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And if you read that context, Galatians 3, 6-14, Paul even there explains that Jesus died as a curse for us. That was a part of the preaching of the gospel that Abraham heard, that Abraham also believed. One gospel. Now what happens when we preach this gospel faithfully? Verses 19 and 20, Luke 3, 19 and 20, what happens? Herod the Tetrarch, he's uh, called here a Tetrarch, and also extra-biblical literature calls him a Tetrarch. And this is basically a ruler or a sub-ruler under the emperor of Rome. You, you might see him called a king because he's not the ultimate king. He's not the supreme king of the, of the empire, but he is a petty king of one of the regions of the empire. And this Herod was reproved by John the Baptist. John the Baptist confronted him because Herodias, Herod's brother's wife, was taken by this Herod. Herod had a brother called Philip, and Herodias was the wife of Philip, another ruler, another king, another tetrarch. He was in another region in that locality. But this Herod, Herod Antipas, this one takes his brother's wife for himself. And history says that Philip had a mild nature and he did not want to fight it and deal with it, so he just left it alone. And this is why this Herod was able to get away with it. But John the Baptist did not let him get away with it. He confronted him. He reproved him because he was living as an adulterer. Both of them were adulterers. So he confronted that. Not only that, but Herod did all kinds of other wicked things that John the Baptist confronted. It says here, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done. It wasn't that one sin alone, which was bad enough. There were many other things that he did, many other wicked things. And John shows himself to be a true prophet. You see, false prophets and false teachers, they will say peace and safety all the time. They'll say love, peace, safety, grace. It doesn't matter. You'll be forgiven. That's the way they talk all the time. They don't talk about it properly and biblically. They talk about it regardless of the people's sins. They say it's okay. It'll all be forgiven. Grace will cover that. God's love is unconditional, so it will cover that. That's the way they talk. It is hard to find, it is hard to find a preacher or pastor today who will confront a politician. The moment he has access to the politician, the moment he knows the politician is listening to his words, whether he's listening to his words in print or audibly, in person, or at, on a, uh, at a distance, through the internet or something like that, the moment he knows that, he goes giddy. The, the preacher is giddy. He's fanatical. He wants access to the politician. He wants to shake his hands. He wants to be in the office. He wants a picture with him. And then he wants to celebrate this picture with all of his friends, distributing it widely. This is what pastors do. They will not confront the politician's sins. But John did. And every true prophet throughout the Old Testament did. Jesus did too. He called Herod that fox. He called him that fox. Go and tell that fox. So we need to be mindful of this and not be duped and tripped up and entrapped by these politicians. If they speak the truth, they are to be commended. But when they do wickedness, they ought to be confronted. Because ultimately, John is setting an example here, because ultimately, we all need to see if people are living according to the will of God. If they are, we can say, wonderful, and we can celebrate that. If they're not, we have to confront it, regardless of the consequences. And in this case, John was even, it says in verse 20, that he locked him up in prison. In Matthew 14 and Mark 6, they record that eventually it cost him his life. They beheaded him because of this. Herod beheaded John the Baptist. He died that kind of a miserable death for his righteousness. Now, we are prone to thinking, 
Well, only certain unique individuals should confront, and only certain unique individuals, if the Holy Spirit tells them, or if they are called by God in some special circumstance, that they should be the ones reproving, rebuking, confronting sins. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. We all should be willing to die on a cross for the sake of Christ. If any man wants to come after me, Jesus said, Luke 9, 23. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It might be a verbal attack, but it might be a physical attack. We, we don't know. Anything could happen. Acts 14.22 For we, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is for all of us. Verse 20, 21, Luke 3:21-22. Now we have a transition into the ministry of Christ, the public ministry of Christ. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When all the people at this time were baptized, now when it says all the people were baptized, it does not mean every single person in the land of Israel was baptized because we know from other passages, such as uh, Matthew 21, Jesus identified how the Pharisees and Sadducees, many of them, refused to be baptized by John. So when it says that all the people were baptized, all the people at that time and in that locality during that incident, right about the time when Jesus was going to be baptized along with them. He was baptized and he was praying. While he was baptized, he prayed. Why did he pray? He prayed because he's knowing, he knows that he is embarking on his public ministry. He's embarking on his public ministry, as it says in verse 23, that he was about 30 years of age when he started his public ministry. And from the chronology of the synoptics and John, we can uh, determine that he ministered for about three and a half years. Jesus ministered for three and a half years publicly. That's all. But he started at age 30. So he prays because he is depending upon the Father, and this is what he did at all times. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He always did. So he's praying. Then heaven is open. Heaven is open, presumably, so that John and perhaps others could have a verification that this one person, this one individual, is indeed being called by God and is the Christ and he is starting his ministry. For these reasons, heaven is open and the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. He comes in the form of a dove. Presumably as a dove because this signifies the, the loving, caring, and gentle nature of Christ. In fact, this was according to a fulfillment of prophecy in the sense that Jesus is gentle. Isaiah the prophet had prophesied and Matthew quotes Isaiah. Matthew 12 verse 17 it says in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled saying behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In this case, Isaiah predicts that the Holy Spirit will come upon Christ so that he will not be associated with those who quarrel and badger and, and cause strife and riots and mobs among the people. He's not a person who does that kind of a thing. 
The same analogy is here, or the same purpose or meaning is in this analogy of him coming in bodily form like a dove. He has this virtue about himself. Yes, he will raise his voice in the sense that he will preach to a crowd. He will do those kinds of things, but he's not going to raise his voice as though he's a rioter or he's a mobster. He's not going to do it like that. He's not going to quarrel with people in that sense. Verse 22, And the Father's voice comes out of heaven. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, but the Father's voice comes out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This voice is heard from heaven in order to assure the people and all of us that God's grace, God's will, God's purpose, calling on Christ's life is indeed true and right, and Jesus is related to the Father. The Son is the Father's beloved Son, His unique Son, His only begotten Son, and God is well pleased in Him. That means that anyone who dares to call upon the name of God, God the Father, and claim that their God is God the Father, such as some religions do, they must understand Him correctly and can only understand Him correctly through His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased. If they don't understand Him through His Son, they don't understand God correctly, no matter what they say. If they don't understand the Son of God correctly, they do not own God, or God does not own them. They do not belong to God. In fact, they say things that are false and contrary to God. This is very explicitly said in 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, which also means that He is the Son of God. And if anyone does this, he is an Antichrist. There is one Antichrist who is yet to come, but there are many Antichrists <coughs> along the way, as it says in 1 John 2.18. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. So, the many Antichrists, one of their false teachings is that Jesus is not the Son of God. And if they say that, according to 1 John 2.22, the one who does that denies the Father and the Son. They deny both. They not only deny the Son, but they also deny the Father. However, verse 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We must confess the Son in His true identity. And in this case, His true divinity. He possesses a divine nature. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God. Only one true and living God who, are, who exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Before Jesus took upon flesh, He existed as Spirit. The Father exists as Spirit. The Son existed as Spirit uh, only before His incarnation. And the Holy Spirit exists as Spirit. That's in His name, the Holy Spirit. And then the Son of God took upon a human nature during His incarnation. So He possesses a divine nature and a human nature in one person, Jesus Christ. Now, His human nature, Luke explains in verses 23 to 38. In 23 to 38, this genealogy is the genealogy of Mary is the genealogy of Mary, who is also from the descendants of Abraham and uh, David, but also from Adam from the very beginning. Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. Matthew takes us back to David and to Abraham. And in this case, Luke takes us all the way back from David and Abraham all the way to Adam and even to God himself. Now, we say this is the genealogy of Mary because there are differences between this one, this chapter, and Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, that is the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke 3 is the genealogy of Mary. In fact, the Jews outside of the Bible, when they talk about Mary and Jesus and Joseph and all of the circumstances related to 
the ministry of Christ, and the family of Christ, they disdain and actually blaspheme the family of Christ. They blaspheme Christ, and they blaspheme God because of what they say about how Mary conceived Jesus. They say Jesus was conceived as an adulterous or fornicated experience with Mary and a Roman soldier. That's what they say. And there's a hint of that in John 8, 46, when they say, we were not born of fornication. They're, they're debating Jesus, and they say, we were not born of fornication, implying that Jesus was, but we're not. We, we are legitimate children. You're an illegitimate son. That's what they were doing. But in the midst of all of this rancor and, and vitriol that the Jews have had over the centuries toward Christ, what do they say? They say, Mary is the daughter of Eli. The daughter of Eli. Now, in that sense, they're not wrong. Just, uh, just as they're not wrong on certain other things they say. Because here, it says here, in verse 23, it's after Joseph, it goes to Eli. And why does it go from Joseph to Eli? And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Luke says, being supposedly the son of Joseph, because he's in that family, and because in genealogies, the Jews do not consider the genealogy through, or, or name the genealogy through the woman or the wife or the mother, but through the man. So this is why he says, supposedly the son of Joseph, and then he gives the genealogy of Mary. And here we have the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Manathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathathias, the son of Shemaim, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel. Let's pause right there. From the first century, they go all the way back to 500 years. About 520 BC, this Zerubbabel was in this royal line, and he was a Persian-appointed governor of Judea. Because he was in the royal line, the Persians appointed him as governor of Judea. That's Zerubbabel. The son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of El-Madam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorin, the son of Matath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Matathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now we have this David is, according to verse 32 also, the son of Jesse. This is David the king, King David. Even though in between Zerubbabel and David there were some familiar names, they were not the names of the patriarchs as we know them. We'll come across them in just a minute. These were other individuals by the same names, such as in verse 29, there's Joshua. In verse 30, there's a Judah. In verse 30, there's another Joseph. These are others in this genealogy. But this here in verse 31, the line of David... Why is the line of David important? Because in 2 Samuel 17, the first time it's announced in Scripture, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14 especially, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14, God announced to David that he would have an eternal kingdom through his special son, that is, through Christ. He announced that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this is why the Jews from that time on were looking for the, among the descendants of David for Christ to be born. Since David was of Bethlehem, the Christ was also predicted to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 verse 2. So they expected Christ to be born there as a descendant of David. And this is why in the synoptics he is called the son of David. Especially we see that phrase there, the son of of David. Why? Not because he is the immediate son of David, because he's virgin born, but because he is the descendant of David a thousand years before, because of God's promise to David to have an eternal kingdom. That eternal kingdom will exist for David, not because of David, not because he's 
great, though he was a godly man, but because his son is great, he is the Christ. Verse 32. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon. Now, the Boaz of verse 32 is providentially the Boaz of the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we know that Ruth was uh, widowed and, and then she went migrated from the land of Moab to the land of Judea. And there in the land of Judea or Judah at the time, she marries Boaz. And then they celebrate this marriage because the people of the town, they know the significance of this because Boaz is in the line of, the, uh, of Jacob. And in order for the line of Jacob through Judah to be perpetuated, and even through the son of Judah, Perez, which we'll see in a minute, that that line has to be perpetuated for the Messiah to be born. This is why the, the townsmen are celebrating there in Ruth chapter 4. They know that this is a significant marriage, that Ruth would marry Boaz and therefore have a son. And when he was born, Obed was born, Boaz and Ruth's son, Obed, was born, the women, the women celebrate, and they say, a son has been born to Naomi. Uh, and so they celebrate that she has, uh, uh, Naomi and Naomi's line through Boaz and Ruth is being perpetuated. They know because of the promises of God. Then 33, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Notice there, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Judah's son, Perez. Why this son? Because God chose it. God chose for the Messianic line to come from Judah, which we know in Genesis 49.10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That means the nations will obey this son of Judah. But then God chose for Judah to have a son called Perez, even though Perez came about illegitimately through fornication. Genesis 38 explains that. Even though that happened through fornication, God chose for Judah's son Perez to be in the line of Christ. That's why his name is mentioned here. And this is also why in Ruth chapter 4, they have, there's a genealogy and the people know that this is coming also from Judah through Perez then to Boaz, as it says here. They know all that and they celebrate all that. And then from Judah, verse 34, now it's the son of Jacob. Among the 12 sons of Jacob, one son was chosen for the Christ to come through him, and that was Judah. Genesis 49, 10 is one example. And Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac had two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, but the one son was chosen and the other rejected. And Isaac, the son of Abraham. We know that Abraham had two sons, one son from Sarah, who was Isaac, and the other one through Hagar, whose name was Ishmael. Ishmael was rejected. Isaac was chosen. And it was through this, the son of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah Miraculously, at age 100 and age 90, respectively, they had Isaac because of the will of God and the miraculous power of God. And God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From that time, God told Abraham that he was chosen because he was going to be an ancestor of Christ. In you. Verse 35, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpachshad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. Let's pause there in verse 36. We have Noah, another major patriarch. Why is it that in Genesis 11, we have a brief genealogy in the last half of the chapter? Why is that? That genealogy traces the lineage from Noah to Abraham in Genesis 11. Why? in order to preserve the messianic line, to preserve it from Noah to Abraham, to, to show that the record is being kept because the, in the providence of God, he will ensure 
that from Noah's sons, the one son is chosen, as it says there in verse 36, Shem, Noah had three sons, but Shem was the chosen line, and the Messiah would come through him. So Noah is there. 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There too we see in verse, um, verse 38, the son of Enosh, Seth, and Adam, those three. We know that from Genesis chapter 4 that Adam had a son, Cain, and he had another son, Abel. Cain was wicked, Abel was righteous, but he died for his righteousness. He died, he was murdered by Cain. But then at the end of the chapter, Genesis 4, another son is born to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve, they celebrate the fact that Seth is born, as he's named in verse 38, and then Seth has a son named Enosh, and these two carry on the line of Adam and Eve, from Seth and then to Enosh. And this is the purpose of Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5's purpose is to outline the genealogy from Adam to Noah. From Adam to Noah. Genesis chapter 5, that whole chapter is a genealogy going from Adam to Noah for us to know that God is going to fulfill His promise to have the Christ to be born from Adam and Eve, from their lineage. Not from any other lineage because there is none. There's no such thing as different um, or, or origins or multiple origins of the human race. There's no such thing as that. We all come from Adam and Eve. It says in Acts 17.26, From one He made every nation of mankind to dwell on all the face of the earth. There's only one origin. We have Adam and Eve. Neither are there ape men and ape creatures. They never, there never were and there are none today. That does not exist either. And God did not select a male from one of those ape creatures, ape men, and another one from another group of ape men, uh, a, a female from another one, and bring the two together and give them and endow them with the image of God. God did not do it that way either. He created Adam from the ground and then he created Eve from Adam's side. That's the way it happened. That's what the Word of God says. So none of those other theories are true. They're just falsehoods uh, perpetuated by Satan. Now, verse 38 also says Adam is the Son of God. He's the Son of God in the sense that... He's not the Son of God in the sense that Christ is the only begotten Son of God or that we are sons of God by adoption. But He is the Son of God by creation, by natural production. God created Adam, and therefore, because He created Adam, God is, in a natural sense, or in the sense of creation, He's Adam's father in that way. God created Adam, and therefore, Adam is the Son of God. All things originate with God. This shows that Jesus had a human nature. A, a human nature. He's a descendant of Adam, yet without sin, as we saw from the earlier chapters of Luke, but also we read about this in other places, such as in Romans 5, 12 to 21, Adam brings about sin, evil, and death, but Christ does the very opposite. He does the very opposite because he's perfect and righteous, sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says this. Hebrews 7.24-26. There are many scriptures that assert the, the sinlessness and perfection of Christ who is the opposite of Adam in terms of sin. But he is the same as Adam in terms of having a human nature. He had a physical being, a physical body. He had that. He died on the cross with it. He was buried with it for three days. And then he was raised with it. And he still has it. According to Philippians 3.20, he has a body, an immortal body. He still has a body, and he will come with that body from heaven. And then we will be transferred and translated into having a body like his. Our mortals, body, mortal bodies will become immortal bodies. That's the way Christ is now. 
This is important to note because there are there are commentators who say, and cults and false religions are started because of this, they say that Jesus does not have a human nature at all. He was just a, a, a spirit, a ghost, a phantom. He only had some kind of uh, intangible nature. Perhaps he's only divine, they say, but he's not human at all. They say not human, and they don't want him to be human because they think the physical body in and of itself is evil and the physical body will not sustain death because they think that the physical body will disintegrate once we die, annihilation, uh, we will completely be annihilated and we will not have an eternal physical and spiritual existence. They reject that belief. Because they reject that belief, they go to Christ and say He did not ever have a human body and he does not have a human body now. But we know that that's not true. Jesus did have a human body. It says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh. He took upon human flesh. And it was necessary for him to take upon human flesh for him to die on the cross for our sins. Those same cults will deny that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. But he did. We need to believe in his divine nature and in his human nature and believe the gospel that John preached, that Abraham believed, and Abraham taught his children, and that the apostles taught. We need to believe this one gospel, who Christ is and why he came into the world, to die and rise again for our sins if we believe in him and turn away from our sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Lord, we pray that you'll give us a better, better understanding of the gospel. Lord, we want to be built up in it. And we don't want to believe in Christ as any mere human and not even a sinful human. We reject those, Lord. But we know that he was perfect. And we know that he had a physical body that was necessary to die for our sins. Lord, we also don't want to deny His divinity, His divine nature that was completely deity. We don't want to deny that either. We want to understand that and we want to confess it and believe it. And we want to preach it to people. We also pray, Lord, that we'll understand why He died on the cross, that He died to take away our sins. Yet, Lord, it does not happen automatically. There is no such thing as all humans and demons going to heaven. That is false. We know that. So we pray that we will not believe that or imply that at all, but call people to turn away from sin and to believe in the gospel so that they might receive justification, that they might be exonerated and forgiven of all their sins. Lord, we do want your grace to be manifested. We pray that we will correctly preach it and teach it. Lord, all that we have and all that we need is in you. We thank you for that. And thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.